Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're streaming live at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks and uh, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the program. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. You can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And you can also check out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If that's SoundCloud, tune in, iTunes, or Google Play, or any other platform, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And if you'd like to uh, to give us a call, right, share your insights and perspectives. Uh, throughout the course of tonight's show, you can do so by giving us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. All right, Radio Islam family, uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, we are already, I'm always watching the clock, right? Always watching the clock. But uh, we are already uh, well within, t- we're into the 6 o'clock hour. Um, and there are a few things that we want to want to hit uh, today we want to talk about, bring up, uh, and things that hopefully we're gonna we're gonna think more about in a in a constructive way. Uh, so we're talking about we're gonna lead off tonight's show talking about um, police shootings uh, in the U.S. and they have uh, that that has disproportionately affected. Uh, black and brown communities throughout the United States. Uh, and I believe we've talked about this before. Many of you know, if you look at the, demogra- the demographics of uh, the United States and the population, uh, population numbers, uh, we see that um, just based on the numbers, right, just based on the numbers, uh, if we're looking at an African-American population of, you know, just at just about 13 percent um, compared to uh, the white population, uh, which uh, sits around uh, 60, 60, 62, well, 61, 62%. Um, and the, the number of shootings and the way they break down. Now, of course, everything has to be contextualized, but uh, looking at the history of, of police interactions within communities of color, within African-American communities, within um, uh, Latinx communities, uh, we see that there is a, a trend that goes beyond simply just um, just it's just it goes beyond just being routine. So thus far in 2018, there have been 576 people shot and killed by police in the U.S. Uh, white, 236, black, African American, 110, uh, Hispanic or Latinx, you know that that whole uh, gamut. We're talking 77 people. So you're looking at numbers. Uh, the African American um, portion of that, it is just about just a little bit under half of what it is for the white population, um, uh, for the for, for those uh, who happen to be white, and that says something when you look at the the numbers population wise, right? There's a there's a a problem there. Now, since we are we are in Chicago, right? I want to bring this back uh, to Chicago, right? So, first of all. This issue, it, it keeps coming up, right? Uh, we look on the news, we see someone, uh, we, and, and it's generally a, a African-American male uh, who has been, who's on the news and he's been shot, he's been killed. The latest was, um, uh, matter of fact, he's not the latest. Matter of fact, there's, 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 there's been another, uh, I believe, but um, recently over on the uh, southeast side of Chicago, uh, Brother um, Augustus Harith. Um, Harold Augustus, I'm sorry. Yeah, Harold Augustus. He he was shot and killed by police over in the uh, near the south in the South Shore uh, neighborhood. And of course, what we're looking at, what we're looking at, and it, it's just a continuation, right? We continue to see uh, the same thing, same thing kind of play out. And of course, there are different circumstances surrounding uh, each each instance, but what it always leads us to, it leads us to outrage from the community and it leads to a response from uh, from politicians, from those, from our elected officials. It leads um, to not necessarily always constructive conversation, 
but it definitely it exposes the raw emotion, uh, raw emotion, uh, and the sensitivities and the uh, just the frustration that exists uh, in these communities. So police oversight it becomes a part of the conversation, right? How do we respond as elected officials? How do we respond to the these instances of violence? And well, the, the message seems to be consistent, but we don't. Can we really tell if that message has had the impact that the community needs for it to have? So first off, we want to start off by listening to um, uh, Mayor, Mayor uh, Rahm Emanuel. He, was, he spoke on this, this is, I think it was about maybe four months ago, four or five months ago, uh, just addressing police oversight and reform. So we want to take a listen to that, and then uh, we'll, we'll uh, pick it up after that. We, we as a city, the superintendents, let the effort. Every officer in the city of Chicago now has a body camera. Every officer has been trained as it relates to making sure on the right use of force, how to distinguish between a mental health call and a public safety call. So we've continued to march on reform. Our efforts are to ensure that while we have the right type of oversight and the right type of uh, accountability, it is complementary to our public safety goals. And we're all going to make sure that a lot of voices are heard, that we work together to find the right perfect, strike the right balance between police oversight, our public oversight of the police department, with our public safety goals, and make them complementary, not contradictory. Okay. So there, there are a few things that I, I heard in there. I don't know what you heard, but what I heard in there is the, uh, first of all, having a complementary uh, a complementary effort or strategy uh, that will ensure public safety, but also keep in, keep in mind or be more aware of, of issues that can affect police being called out, right? Mental health issues being one of those issues. Uh, so saying, definitely saying the right things, on the, uh, hitting the right notes, talking about things that, yes, that they are important. Um, but also talking about this idea about the right use of force. And I, I think the jury is out on that because we don't we see force being used in instances uh, that does is does it doesn't necessarily uh, does not necessarily equate. It does not fit to the situation um, where there, there, you know, alternative uses of force uh, does not seem to be something that is. Uh, that's being employed or that's being really embraced uh, in or at least not not on the on the level that we'd like to see it, uh, not with the consistency that we would like to see it. So talking about police oversight right now, this hasn't really changed the reality of an overall toxic police culture in Chicago and many other urban centers around the nation. So when we talk about toxic, we're talking about poisonous, right, toxicity um, uh, that is. Uh, anathema to, to health, right? It goes against our overall well-being. And this leads to uh, to a question, at least in my mind. So what could be poisonous about police community relations? And one of the answers is that the assumption, if there's an assumption held by the police uh, that are serving in these communities, that they have a different goal than the community at large, right? Say that again. If there is a different assumption or there's an assumption by police that they have different goals than the community at large, that can breed, that can turn into a toxic situation, right? Because you are not, it's not a complementary, it's a contradictory uh, relationship. It's a contradictory engagement. Uh, second thing, uh, to act as entitled visitors, right? And I'm talking about the police, how they operate in, in these communities where we see violence not just not just uh, taking place at the hands of police on community members, but violence that is taking place within the community itself. And we understand that the, the, the subtext or the, to contextualize that violence, that violence comes from a, from a place of disenfranchisement. It comes from a place of uh, uh, de- uh, destabilization. It comes from a place of... Um, uh, lack of uh, of opportunity or engagement, and a lot of this has been may as well have been codified in, in, in law, right? Because it's generational 
in, in some of these uh, in some of these communities. So to have police that are in these communities acting as if they they uh, they are owed something. Right. And I think I couldn't really say it any any clearly any more clearly than to say acting as entitled visitors. Right. They they feel like they can walk in a the house. They can open up your refrigerator and take what they want out uh, and they don't have to replace anything. They can walk in and sit on your couch, sit in your favorite seat, um, turn the turn the television channel, uh, and you're supposed to just simply sit there and be quiet, right? Your relationship is is based upon their uh, dominance and your subservience. So that's a toxic that's a toxic situation, uh, and it's toxic. Um, it's toxic when, especially when, you feel that those people who are serving supposed to be serving your community are not vested you can, you see that they are not vested in that community it's as if i'm going i'm just i'm here for my eight hours and then i go home and whatever happens here really it does not affect me i don't think about it later so you know i'm just a visitor i'm not a, i'm not a resident i'm not invested third thing leaving the communities they serve in worse condition than they found them. And I think this probably could have been first. Um, but uh, in Islam, and I, I think I would say for, for most faith, uh, faith traditions, but it, it, there's the belief that we want to leave spaces better than we found them, right? If we come into any space, whatever it is, if it's professional, if it's just, uh, uh, if we're volunteering, whatever, whatever the... Uh, the range of responsibility we have, whatever our engagement is, we want to leave whatever space we, we are in in a better condition than we found it. And when that doesn't happen, um, well, I mean, it's obvious, right? When, when we leave a place depleted, uh, we not only leave the, the land, but we, we leave the people uh, depleted. We leave the people uh, in a state of uh, frustration. We take away the hope that should come along or the security that should come along with having uh, people that are sworn to protect, sworn to serve. Um, but instead, you find yourself feeling either um, disregarded, uh, alienated, or just outright attacked. Uh, and that is not, you know, that's, that's not a recipe for community health. Last thing I would mention on this. And this is uh, on behalf of the police. Once again, it is to display uh, a conditional commitment to justice, a conditional commitment to justice. As long as the upholding of justice doesn't compromise those that they are sworn uh, to uphold it with. Right. So I'm all about upholding the law, I'm all about justice. I'm all about um, protection, protection. I'm all about service as long as it does not compromise those who are also sworn to uphold it, but they may not be delivering on that, right? And that's where we get into this whole thing about when we talk about police cover-ups, uh, we talk about um, uh, a lack of transparency, or we talk about officers circling the wagons when they know that in their midst they have people who are not committed. Uh, they have people, and it, and it does not, it does not um, it doesn't suffice to say that, well, you had a bad day. So, you know, um, we're just going to give you give you give you another shot tomorrow. There are certain certain professions. There are certain professions where sometimes your first bad day needs to be your last day. Uh, and depending upon the severity of the, the infraction, what you do, um, you know, that's hey, that's that's just what it is. So anyway, we're left now with uh, with COPA, right? So we have the Civilian Office of Police Accountability in Chicago. Uh, the question is, how do they impact or reduce the levels of toxicity present in police community relations? Now, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, uh, this is the oversight agency of the Chicago Police Department, right? So to give you a little history, uh, October of uh, 2016, the Chicago City Council passed an ordinance to establish COPA. Now, it replaced the Independent Police Review Authority as the civilian oversight agency of the CPD. Now, 
the uh, COPA, it has the authority uh, to investigate. Uh, it has to, uh, in, uh, they can investigate any instance where uh, allegations of misconduct are made, uh, where any time a CPD member uh, discharges a firearm uh, in, a, in any manner that could have, where they could have strike, uh, st- uh, stricken or struck uh, another individual. Right, whether they use a stun or taser in a manner that causes the death or serious injury of an individual. Right, so you kind of get the idea. Now, this is what I want I want to leave, leave with, right, in terms of because the whole idea in this, uh, for me, it should be a conversation that is restorative, uh, that that allows us to remove some of that toxicity, um, and allows for us to. Um, it allows for some fairness, right? It allows for for some justice. And a big part of that is recognizing those who have been denied justice. So one of the observations uh, that I have is that, well, it's more of a question than it is an observation, and it's going to bear some investigation as well. So within all the administration of COPA, um, I am doubting, I I am seriously doubting that if, that there are any family members of persons who have been killed by police who are involved with the community relations aspect of COPA. And the point for me is that it makes sense to me if you want to stop the killing that outrages the community, then you include those who have been most affected by this in that conversation, in that effort, in that oversight. Now, there are a lot of career law enforcement folks, uh, investigative uh, uh, backgrounds and such, that are involved with COPA. And they do have a community liaison or liaisons. But I wonder if a part of that among those liaisons are people who can personally speak to the trauma that is inflicted upon uh, upon a family, upon a community, when their loved one dies at the hands of the police. And this is important, is important on a number of, of levels because justice for, for these individuals is often denied. And if there's any justice, it often comes with a non-disclosure agreement and a payout that does not replace the individual that they lost. And it does not, um, it does not come with an assumption, <clears throat> an assumption of guilt or liability, but simply a payout to say, okay, Let's not talk about this. Take your money and go away, and we'll wait for the next time. The next time this happens, and you that person may or may not get a payout, but there's never an admission of guilt, and there's rarely, there's rarely um, any accountability. So I think that with COPA, one of the things that we should be looking at here and across the nation is that the people that have been most affected by this that they should be a part of that conversation. They should be a part of not just not just the community and administration type relations, but these are the people that need to be that that should be talking to new recruits as they're going through the academy. These are people that should be coming in to talk with uh police and talk with uh with with folks during roll call. Right? These are the people that they need to be mindful of because I go back to one of the assumptions that causes that toxicity and that is to act as if the police have a different goal than the community that they serve. And that's one and, and once we get on the same page with that, then I think we'll be we'll we'll begin to enter into uh restorative waters. We'll be able to, to start having some more productive conversations and we won't see we won't see some of the, the we won't see some of the some of the bloodshed uh that we continue to see. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll, we'll definitely, I'm sure we'll be bringing this topic back up, uh, later on, but you know what folks, we're going to go ahead and take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fall of the fourth estate. You know what that is, right? All right. This is Radio Slam on WCV 1450 AM.
The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. Did I say that too quickly? This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We're on WCV 1450 AM. Streaming at WCV1450.com. Remember, you can keep up with us on social media and find our podcast wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam. So both things at Radio Islam USA. Excuse me. At Radio Islam USA. Okay. Um, so the fourth estate. Right. This is important. Why is the fall of the fourth estate important? It's important for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, we are probably I think we're probably living in unprecedented uh, political times. Uh, we've never seen anything like this. And for some people, for those for, for news junkies, this is definitely something that you're paying attention to. And for others who may con- consider themselves to be uh, casual observers, you probably need to pay more attention and not be so casual. Um, the Washington Post uh, fact checker blog, right? They have since Trump's inauguration, they have been keeping a strict count of his many misstatements, uh, many his lies, right? Just outright lies. Uh, over the weekend at a rally in Michigan, Trump topped the 3,000 untrue or misleading misleading statements in his first 466 days in office. That's an official count, according to the Washington Post. Yeah. So that means on average that Trump says 6.5 things that aren't true a day. Right now, they've done this, and you can, you can go to, the, uh, to their website, and there's a whole article on this. Right. So every day, every single day. So there is a real there's a real problem. (laughs) There's a real problem with this. There's a very um, there's there's an estranged relationship with the truth, obviously. So it says that he's actually picking up the pace when it comes to not telling the truth. He's averaged nine untruths or misleading statements a day over the past two months, according to uh, the post, um, their, their account. Now, this is. Interesting on a few a few levels. Number one, when we when we think about President, I'm not even going to call him. When we think about Donald Trump, we think about someone who has made a, you know, he, he's made his bones with coming at the media, which is ironic. It's, it's very interesting because this is the same media, right? The same media that he says we're not going to listen to the fake news and the fake papers and. And they're all struggling and they just want you to listen to them and they'll do anything. They'll say anything. Um, these are the same folks, the same companies who gave him primetime coverage during his campaign. Same folks who showed up to cover his rallies and did so, happily did so, because Trump at that point was he was an oddity, an anomaly. He was. You know, it was kind of kind of like almost like carnival, a carnival barker. And so people were drawn to the spectacle. 
this reality TV star says he's going to run for president. Let's see what he has to say. And the more they covered him, and the, the ratings were good, which means that the ad revenue was good. They legitimized him. They legitimized him, right? So they created Trumpenstein, right? And, and, and now Trumpenstein has turned on them. And not only has he turned on them, he has turned a large sec- sec- uh, section or segment of the electorate on the media as well. So that being said, before we come back, we're going to talk about really defining this fourth estate. Let's take a listen. Vice did a uh, they, they, they interviewed folks outside of a Trump rally to ask them why they hate the media. And let's take a listen to some of the, the responses uh, that people gave. Spread of evidence that Russia hacked our election. Okay, there's speculation. Well, there's a federal investigation into it. Right. So shouldn't we be covering that? A federal investigation into who hacked the DNC? Well, no, a federal investigation into Russian involvement in the Trump campaign. That's the federal investigation that's ongoing right now. No. How's it going? How you doing? What's your name? My name is Bill. I see you, Bill. Seems like your person doesn't really believe the media that much. Uh, no, I don't. I will never believe the media until they get off the climate change kick. I would like to know where some of these celebrities went to school and what was their major in college. Mine happens to be environmental science. Science has to be provable and repeatable, okay? I would like to know where the ice went that was right here 10,000 years ago. Did primitive man drive cars? Got it. Thanks, sir. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. What should the media do differently? Like, if you, want, if, you, if you had a chance to tell them what you want to see them do, what would it be? Um, well, what you're doing, listening to people like me. I think you guys live in a bubble, you know, and you see things from only your world view, and you don't, you don't think that, yeah, there's people out here, you know, in Minnesota and Iowa that aren't idiots, we're not rednecks, we're not racists, you know, we're not homophobes, xenophobes, and all the other crap that we're called. You know, and you should you should respect our opinions and come out and see what people want to see covered from our point of view. OK, interesting, interesting, um, interesting comments there, uh, particularly from the uh, the climate change fellow. He says in environmental science, uh, we don't know what kind of grades he got, um, but and I'm, I'm not going to take shots at him but really the most important thing out of that was and it was a valid a valid statement right there is always a it's easy to demonize people who see things differently than you do um it's easy easy to other people yes very easy uh and you know the fact is that we are complex people and we very rarely fit into these neatly designed or constructed boxes that we'd like to see ourselves in uh so that being said I'll I'll accept I'll accept the idea that people want to be heard. Yes, sure, people want to be heard. But I'm gonna also I'm I'm also assert that people should also listen. Right? Just because you hear something that you don't like, it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that it does not is not worthy of any consideration. And of course, now I, I think you could probably tell from the from the uh, from the audio, the majority of Trump supporters happen to be happen to be white. Now there are some, uh, there are some African American, there are some uh, Latinx, there there you know there are others of every other uh, ethnicity that have aligned themselves with Trump. But by and far, the majority of his of his uh, constituency. Um, or, or I should say those majority of his supporters, his base, tend to be uh, white people in America. And with that comes, for me, the question of uh, the question of acknowledging, right? Can we have another conversation about acknowledging maybe the privilege that comes along with that with that position? And I don't know, I don't know, I'm not certain. If that's a conversation that any of those folks would would entertain or even really really think about, because it's not necessarily a matter of when you say you have privilege, that we're saying that you are responsible for the wrong uh, or whatever ills are taking place in society. 
but it is to say that you are accountable because you you operate or you exist from a position of power. Uh, whether you know, and of course, you know everybody everybody has issues. Not everybody, but the majority of America has issues when it comes to their finances, looking for health care, trying to have education, want retirement, all of the things that the 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 the, uh, the politicians go out and they speak on, right? So this is a uniting factor among all of us. But those things are more easily achieved uh, and obtained when you happen to be a white person in America. By and large, that has been the that's been the history, and it still remains the present of America and their institutional forces uh, and societal norms and biases that uh, that play into that. Now, that doesn't mean that as a recipient of that that it's your fault because the system is what it is, but it does mean that you should recognize the privilege associated uh, with your being. And with that, if you are a person who's committed to justice, uh, that you would hold yourself accountable for acting in a way that makes sure that equity exists, that everybody has the same type of, uh, the same type of opportunity, right? That we, we really do have an egalitarian uh, system, which we... Uh, we like to talk about that. We like to send a brochure out about the United States, uh, about living here. Uh, but that is one of the areas that we that we fall short on. Uh, we continue to fall short on. But this idea of the fall of the fourth estate, right? So the fourth estate or the fourth power. We know we have three branches of government that are supposed to that are supposed to act independent of one another and allow us to have the system of checks and balances that our government enjoys. Um, and uh, which in a lot of ways is a model for, you know, as far as government, uh, the sharing of the distribution of power is concerned. So we got the, uh, the judicial and the legislative and executive, right? Um, now, the, the fourth estate uh, is defined, and you can look this up, you know, if you want to check Wikipedia or any other uh, dictionary, but generally it's basically defined as the uh, segment of society that wields an indirect but significant influence on society even though it's not formally recognized as part of the political system. Uh, And this is most commonly recognized, this fourth estate is most commonly recognized as the news media or press. Uh, It's used to accentuate the freedom of the press, which is not to be confused with the term fourth branch, right, which proposes uh, that they are not free from the government. The press is called the fourth estate, usually because they observe the political process. And what we're looking at today, uh, and I believe, uh, Ibrahim, you mentioned it in the, um, in the opening, uh, in, the, in the news report, about, uh, what's the name, uh, Caitlin Collins of CNN, being barred from the White House press corps. And she asked a, she asked a question about um, Michael... Um, Cohen, yes. She asked a question about Michael Cohen, right, his former former attorney, the same one that's involved with the whole Stormy Daniels uh, payoff and all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess Trump didn't, he didn't care for that. But we also know that he has, I mean, he's, he's came right out and blacklisted uh, and, and, and lambasted uh, not only CNN, but the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, and he does this because he does not want anybody to observe the political pro- they don't. He doesn't want to be observed. He doesn't want to be questioned. He doesn't want to be second-guessed. He wants to operate as if he is running his company and that nobody has the right to say anything to him. Nobody can question him. Nobody can critique him. So his whole job his whole, I don't want to say his, his job, but yes, he, he's shown a, a commitment that we have not seen uh, in, any, in any president. And, and I have issues. I have my own issues with the media. Uh, and they generally fall around representation of, uh, of, of minorities uh, and whether they be religious or ethnic. Uh, those, are some of the, those are some of the problems that I have 
with the media and, and some of the, the misrepresentations that they have given. I have I, I have problems with the overreporting of crime and, and, and the use of ethnicity in crime reporting. Right. I, I, so, I mean, I'm I'm not here to hold the media uh, blameless, but I, I will say that it's the same media that I look back at someone, a trooper, right, a, a journalistic icon like Ida B. Wells, um, who came and um, and brought brought to attention, brought to, to widespread attention, uh, the lynching of African Americans uh, throughout the South, right? That was that that was journalism. That was using the press, right, to bring about justice. Um, I have, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to give you the whole, you know, the whole you know marching drum show and all of that stuff, but simple, just kind of. I just wanted to bring that up to say that it's not just about cheering on the media, but it is to say that the media is a necessary part of a functioning democracy. Um, it is a necessary part of getting out uh, ideas so there can be discussion. And what he just, what Trump has committed himself to is the removal and the destabilization of the media. I mean, because people could simply, they could write in, they could write in letters. They could say the same thing that uh, they sit on the audio. How come you're not listening to us? You know, this is what we feel. So there, there is a part of me, there is a part of me that is hesitant to accept uh, some of the things that they said just because any one of them, any one of those folks could have sent in an email or a letter or um you know, anything. It's not as if, in my opinion, right, it's just my opinion, that they are being iced out, that they're being just completely ignored. So uh, last thing I want to mention on this, I don't know uh, if you if you all saw this, but this is with regard to the tariffs uh, and how it is hitting, uh, how it's hitting Trump country, uh, The those who are uh, in the agricultural industry, right, the farmers, and they are planning now, I think it's a $12 billion, basically a bailout. Uh, but Trump was at a rally, and he told the people, he says, don't listen to what you hear, and you don't don't believe what you see. Did you see that? Did you, you hear that clip? Yeah. So, and of course, what they're doing is they're comparing this to the whole, uh, they say it's a very Orwellian uh, context uh, to that, you know, where the state begins to remove free will and and, and free thinking, uh, and it becomes it. You know, you you enter into fascism. You enter into that state where the individual does not have uh, has no agency. And Trump stood up and told the people, "Who are you gonna believe, me or your lying eyes?" So, I thought that was a real. That was that was a that was a player move if I've ever seen one. Um, and yet, and yet he still holds the highest, um, approval rating among a Republican president since, since Reagan said upwards of uh, 80%. So there's, there's, there's something going on here, not just with, with him, right? He, he represents a movement. Um, so, uh, that's it. The fourth estate. Uh, it is under attack. If, you, if you're not paying attention, pay attention. And good or bad, right, faulty or, or deficient or whatever, it still remains. It remains a, a, a vital part of a democratic, uh, of a free society. I'll say that, of a free society. All right. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back. When we come back, we're going to close out with a few thoughts on... What is it called? It's called Birthright Citizenship. All right. This is Radio Slime. We'll be back in just a second. Pressure is hard on every member of the family, but your family is not alone. If you're struggling with your mortgage, there is help. 
To learn about the government's Making Home Affordable program, visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE to speak to a HUD-approved housing counselor. It's free of charge. Visit makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE today. Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, NeighborWorks America, and the Ad Council. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is Joe Tariq Alameen, and we are still on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. I have to take a moment to just kind of take in this. I don't, we don't normally get to, we don't play this one. This is a just a really chill, I don't know why, it's like one of those. This makes me think about the courtship of, of, of was it the courtship of Eddie's father or something like that? It's an old show. I don't know why this this music has made me thinking about that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so um, birthright citizenship, right? What is birthright citizenship, and what is the deal, and how is this how is this made it into the um, into the public discourse, right? Now, it just it did not just happen. There was recently. Uh, there was recently an article written. Uh, it was uh, in the. It was op-ed in the Washington Post, written by a fellow named Michael Anton, and it it was basically kind of a, a hatchet job on uh, reinterpreting the Fourteenth Amendment, right? The first section of the Fourteenth Amendment. Now. Why is this important? It's important for, well, first of all, let's just go through the 14th Amendment, right? We get a little bit of a a history lesson here, right? A little constitutional um, review real quick. So section one of the 14th Amendment, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction, let's start that over. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, that seems pretty clear, right? Um, If you're born here, naturalized, uh, subject to the jurisdiction, um, you are a citizen of the United States. Now, there is an, uh, there's a, uh, an issue brought up by folks who are distraught at the, it's not they're distraught about, the, about immigration, they're distraught about the browning of America, right? And this is a real problem for, for some people. And as people are coming into the United States, crossing the border, um, and this is just one one specific one one particular uh, group that's coming in, right? Because we know it, we have we have immigrants, uh, we have undocumented. Let's go to the undocumented. We have undocumented um, uh, residents who are here from countries all around uh, the world, uh, not just across the southern border. Now, 
The problem for them is that those who have crossed over, if they have a child here, that child is automatically is automatically granted citizenship. It's automatically a citizen according to the first section of the 14th Amendment. Now, on the campaign trail, and the reason I said that this is not a new argument, this didn't just happen with that uh, article that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week or so. This is something that Donald Trump was espousing in 2015 on the campaign trail when he brought up his response or how he would fix immigration, what he would do. And his whole issue was we need to get the illegal, his words, right? We need to get the illegal immigrants out of here. And those who have, uh, who have, who have gotten citizenship, right? Children, right? He's, he's making this logical jump um, in, in his logic, this jump to saying that if your parents were undocumented, then you don't get documentation, right? You don't get to be a citizen. You don't get citizenship, even if you are born here. And which is, of course, against the, uh, it goes against that first section of the 14th Amendment. So there's a, um, there, there's a, there's a problem. There's a problem in that. And I think, well, we were talking about this before, that this may become its own uh, movement, but because it didn't, it didn't start last week, right? But there, I, I don't know if they're going to get much, if they're going to get much traction with this, to be honest with you, because we're talking about changing the Constitution, which is not something that happens, uh, does not happen often, regardless of how, regardless of how upset or distraught they are about the, uh, about the dem- demographical uh, change of the United States. What they are doing, what they have done, is that they have changed their policies and procedures at the border in receiving those who are coming, who are coming into the country and not allowing those who are here to lawfully um, who, uh, claim for, uh, to seek asylum, basically circumventing that process. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go ahead, Mike. You say what? They can try to they reinterpret the Constitution with the conservative majority for it. Uh, they they can try, but I, I still think that's a far. I think it's a it's a, it's a long shot. Um, but doesn't mean that they won't do it. Doesn't mean they won't do it. But I think it's more. It is more uh, effective for them to use their control over policies um, in in. In, uh, in dealing with the border, uh, it's more effective for them to utilize uh, law enforcement agencies like ICE to do their dirty work for them. Uh, and just to give you an, an update for those of you, some of you may already have seen this, uh, but you may have not. So, you know, a federal court, it gave the uh, it gave the Trump administration, it gave the, the U.S. government a deadline on uniting those, what was it 2,000, or over 2,000, right, uh, on, on reuniting those children with their parents, those that were in the uh, child care, what is it, the child, they had some really nice, innocuous name, but uh, baby, from, from baby jail, <clears throat> excuse me. So they, they had a deadline to, to get them back together. Turns, it turns out, that uh, the number is somewhere around, um, I don't know, I, I, don't know, I think it was like 500, but a substantial number of, of children will not, be, will not be reunited with their parents. It does not look like, they're going to need to give me some water, excuse me. They will not be, that's better. They will not be reunited with their parents, with their families, because their families, their parents have been deported. Already. So, go figure. Um, they, they, their ability to use the existing uh, law enforcement apparatus to manipulate, manipulate policy and come up with more uh, inventive, cruelly inventive ways to punish people for coming here, seeking a better life that, uh, than the one that was behind them. Uh, it is... Well, it's, 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 it's like diabolical, like evil genius type stuff. Uh, and we haven't talked a whole lot about him, just kind of a, a little bit. But Stephen Miller, 
is probably somebody we really we're going to have to we're going to have to do some have some conversation on him because uh, he is the admitted architect behind the whole um, separation separation of families and who knows who's giving what directive but it all goes back to who's in the White House as well uh, the directive that is being given uh, to ICE. Uh, as far as, you know, how they're interacting with safe spaces. Um, so we, we're we in a position uh, with regard to this whole birthright citizenship uh, conversation. And as Ibrahim said, it may, it may end up, uh, you know, with the Republican-controlled uh, Republican uh, Congress that they actually do try to make a move on the Constitution. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. But we won't know that. Right. Who are we going to depend on to tell us that it's going to be the fourth estate It's going to be the media. It'll be the news outlets. It'll be those people that are at the White House that are covering um, uh, the Senate, that are covering the, the House uh, that will that will be that we depend on to report back uh, those who observe the political process. So it's a vital function and it's one that we should not take for granted. Uh, it flaws and all. It's one that we should not take for granted. All right, Radio Sound family, uh, it has been a blast, as always, uh, spending an hour with you. We are coming to, to to the wind down. Yeah, we're down to our last few minutes. So at this point, we want to uh, remind you, tomorrow, our guest is Hen Salah. She is a horror writer. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. I'm sure it will be chilling. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we want to go ahead and thank our engineer over at WCEV. Leonard, thank you very much, sir. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host uh, and or guests or any clips you may have heard are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we are going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.